I've got one more out of 2 Samuel this morning. We're going to jump from where we left off in chapter 12 all the way to the end. Chapter 24, verses 18 to 25, we're talking this morning about low-cost religion. It's one of the lies that our culture tells us, one of the lies that the world would tell us of a low-cost religion. As we think about starting ministries this fall, as we think about being, being the church and getting engaged, engaged in ministry, doing ministry, growing in our Christian lives, pursuing Christ to be like Him and to serve Him and the opportunities that are before us. We need to be delivered from low-cost religion. Let me read for us 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 18 to 25. Hear the Word of God. And Gad came that day to David, and he said to him, Go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. I'll confess to you right now, I'm just going with Arauna, because I'm not certain on this. So, uh, <laughs> my, my Hebrew's just rusty enough that Arauna it is. So David went up at Gad's word, as the Lord commanded, and when Arauna looked down, and he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him, and Arauna went out, and he paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arauna said, why has the Lord my king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you, in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. And then Arauna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arauna gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, The Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built an altar there to the Lord, and he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings so that the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Pray with me. Father in heaven, it is our privilege to come to you this morning. We thank you for your word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit, bone and marrow, unveiling and revealing the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts and leading us in the ways and the paths of life and righteousness. Would you lead us this morning? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are soft to respond that we might pursue you with passion? We might be instruments in the hands of your work and your kingdom. We long to be useful to you, and so we come in Jesus' name. Amen. I want, to th- I want us to think this morning, then, about what your religion costs you. This whole idea of low-cost religion. What does your religion cost you? Now, some of you, if you're good, gospel, evangelical, Bible people, one of your first thoughts ought to be, wait a minute, my religion is free. <laughs> my religion doesn't cost me anything. The gospel is, is, is free. Jesus paid the price for my sin. 
the price that I owed, the debt that I owed, Jesus paid the price. He bore my sin in his own body on the cross and he paid my debt so that I don't have to pay it. He purchased my salvation. He he set me free and the invitation is come. Without money, without price, come and drink from the waters and the fountains of life. Grace is yours. Peace is yours. This is the gospel. You cannot pay for it. You cannot earn it. At no price, at no cost, there is nothing we can do to earn the pleasure and the love and the grace of God toward us. It must be a gift. It must be offered and received freely. The Bible says the wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. This is the gospel. Right? This is the glorious truth of the Scriptures to, to which all of us respond and come. If we are in Christ at all, it's gloriously true. And if you have not come to Christ like this, if you have not heard that free gift, if you have not heard that free call, that invitation to come to Jesus without cost, without price, and to receive from Him that gift of life, I call you this morning, Jesus would call you this morning to come and to receive it. That's your business this morning. That's in a sense your only business this morning if you haven't is to come to Christ like that. But what Jesus offers to us costs nothing. But when we have understood and embraced that gift, it changes everything. Right? It changes literally everything. David took a census in the life of Israel. He's not supposed to do that. There's, there's a lot into this passage that I, I don't want to get into this morning. It's a, another sermon for another day. But David takes a census. He's not supposed to take censuses. He's not supposed to number his mighty men in a sense of taking stock of his own strength. He's supposed to, to trust in God and to uh, allow God to be his champion, his victor, his salvation. And our temptation is that if we take stock too closely of our strengths and we don't trust in Him and we don't rely on Him. And so David takes this forbidden census. It brings judgment on Israel. And a plague is broken out in the nation and the nation is suffering under judgment. And so God, in verse 18, we're told Gad, God comes to David. He sends, he comes in the person of Gad, the prophet Gad. He sends Gad to David to tell him instruct him to go to Arauna's house, to go to Arauna's farm, his property, by the threshing floor and make sacrifice on behalf of the nation. Go raise up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor. So in verse 19, we're told David heads out. He goes up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. He is obedient. Just at this point, it's one of those things that you think every now and then, wouldn't it be nice to have a personal prophet? Someone who would come to you and tell you when you were in sin. Someone who would give you direction, you know, in terms of what you need to do to serve and to please the Lord. I I think this all the time. And then the word thought strikes me. Do we not have then a whole handful of prophets that will exactly that tell us exactly where we are in sin and, and, and the way of righteousness and the way of life and a prophet who will tell us the way to go? 
So Gad comes to David. David is obedient to the word of the prophet. In verse 20, he heads up. In verse 20, around and looks down. And it says he sees the king and his servants coming. Right? It's not just David. When David goes somewhere, when the king goes somewhere, he never goes alone. He always has an entourage. And so you see David and his servants coming. He's probably got his mighty men. He's probably got court people. He's probably got priests. He's probably got servants of all kinds. And so David comes. It's not a small happening as he goes up to Arana's house. And so we're told Arana sees him and he comes out and he, and he prostrates himself before the king. He gets down. That's the way it's done. He gets down before the king. Pays him homage. And then in verse 21 he says, What's up? Why are you here? What's going on? What do you need from me? I don't get a lot of kings on my farm. And so David tells him, I'm here to buy your threshing floor. I'm here on a mission from God. <laughs> right? That's what really says. I'm here on a mission from God. I need to buy your threshing floor. I'm going to build an altar. I'm going to offer some sacrifices to save Israel from this current plague, this thing that's going on that is that is troubling our nation, and so I'm here on a mission, and I need your threshing floor, I need to buy it from you. It's hard to tell what Aruna is thinking when somebody shows up at your house. I don't know if you, somebody showed up at your house tomorrow and said, look, I need to buy your house and your property from you, or I need to buy all of this from you. Um, you know, it's kind of like the government eminent domain if they show up and they're going to he shows up, and Arana is quite compliant. He is willing, and he says, okay, all right, sure. I'll sell you the threshing floor. In fact, Arana goes beyond that. He said, I'm not only going to sell you the threshing floor to do this business, to, to succeed in your mission, but I would like to contribute to the mission. I would like to give to you the animals necessary and the wood, the, uh, you know, all the the yoke and the whatever the wooden implements that he has so far. He says, I'm going to contribute all this wood and the animals to the sacrifice because I want God to hear you. I want this nation to be saved. I want the plague to stop too. And so, you know, this is serious business. And so he offers to sell him the threshing floor, but to give him all that he needs to offer this sacrifice. And then we get verse 24. The king says to Arana, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. I will not offer sacrifices that cost me nothing. I won't do it. It's not my worship. It's not in my heart to do it that way. Think for a minute about that. He will not give to God an offering that doesn't cost Him. We live in a world that is addicted to a low-cost religion. It costs very little in many ways to follow God, to serve God, to follow Jesus. It costs us very little in America. Most of us would have accepted around his offer and praised God for it. I confess right here, I probably would have. Because I am a bargain hunter. I love freebies. Right? When I, we joke, you know, if something comes with a free gift, I'm interested. You know, 
I still look in the paper on Saturdays and, and, and very often will go to estate sales. If I'm driving down the road and Lynn's not in the car because she doesn't share my passion for some, for some things like garage sales, you know, it's, you, it's not, uh, it wouldn't be unusual for you to see me on the side of the road digging through somebody else's junk looking for a bargain. I don't like, I hate paying retail. I'm a sales shopper, you know, I wait and then I watch because I don't want to pay retail. I want to pay as little as possible and get as much as I can. We call that good stewardship. <laughs> don't, don't we? We call that good stewardship. I want to pay as little as I possibly can and get the most I possibly can. I want, we talk about the most bang for your buck. problem is this. Can you approach your spiritual life like that? Can we approach our spiritual life? Can we approach the worship of God like that? I want to put in, I want to pay as little cost, as little sacrifice as possible and see and get the most out of it. Avert plagues and save nations and see the spiritual life of the nation restored and renewed. I want to, I want to pay as little as possible and get the most out of it. What does it cost to be a disciple? What does it cost to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What does it cost to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? There there is this tension between the freeness of the gospel as it's offered in the New Testament and on every page of it, the freeness of the offer of grace. But in the same books and in the same passages that offer us the freeness of the gospel, right next to it, it says, what does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel? That we have received. And these two things hang in tension, don't they? Oh, the freeness of coming in the front door. And yet, yet the call of discipleship where Jesus, I mean, you go through and look at, if you were to line out on a, on a notebook and just start in the beginning of Matthew, go to the end of John, and list out the passages where Jesus calls people to discipleship, and list out then the verses and the, and the phrases that he used to describe what does it look like, what does it cost to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We would be surprised this tension, in some ways, you know, it's, it's probably free to sign up for the Olympics, should you qualify. It's probably free, free to play in the games, but the question is, what does it cost to be an Olympian? What, what would it cost you personally to pursue gold in your life? What would your life have to look like? What does it cost to be a disciple? Like the kingdom is like a man who finds a treasure in a field. And he sells everything that he has to buy that field. In other words, he invests himself entirely in that treasure. Right? He invests himself entirely. It costs, in one sense, everything. In Luke 14, Jesus tells a story of a man building a tower. And he says the man has to sit down and estimate the cost. Or a man going to war and he sees the enemy coming. He's got to sit down and estimate what is the cost of this endeavor. And then at the end of it, and it's a lot of times we don't know the phrase, after he tells us of you know, building the tower and this guy who's going to war, and it says this, in the same way, those who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. 
There's that cost of discipleship. Jesus says freely, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And then right right next to it, he lays out this cost. He says, "But, but if you are my disciple, which freely you come in the door, what does it look like? David says, I will not offer to the Lord my God that which cost me nothing. Jesus told the story of Jesus and the widow in the temple and everybody's coming in and giving on, their, on the Sabbath. They're giving in the temple and Jesus is sitting there and he sees a widow come in and throw a couple coins into the thing and they clink down to the bottom. And, and Jesus says, that woman, all these other folks had come in and dropped in, you know, they needed a wheelbarrow to bring it in and drop it in. And, and Jesus looks at this woman and he says, that woman gave more than all the others. And the reason is, he says, because all the others gave out of their abundance. And even after they put their wheelbarrow in, they had more left to live on than that woman did after putting in her two coins. And Jesus, when when the woman, she says, she gave more than everyone else. Jesus said, that's something. That's sacrifice. It cost her to give that little bit. To give what she gave, it cost her something. You know, David says, I will not offer to the Lord my God that which costs me nothing. David is saying, I will sacrifice. It's helpful to ask ourselves this morning as we think about this whole thing, are we offering that which costs us? Or are we offering that which costs us nothing? Are we practicing a low-cost religion? Or we put as little in and try to get the most out? We wonder why our spiritual life isn't as deep and as rich and, and our spiritual life isn't as full of the power and the life and the presence and the work of God. You know, there is a spirit in David and that's what I want to touch on. There is just... Underneath this whole passage and what's going on, this sentence reveals David's heart. There's something in David that we need to get. There's something in David that we need to capture. Because it's a heart, it's an attitude, it's a posture that says, you know, I want to sacrifice, I want to give, I want it to cost me, I want to dig into my finite resources of time and stuff, and I want it to cost me to, to worship him, to follow him, to serve him. In fact, Jesus says, yes, this is what it looks like. Sacrifice, by definition, is costly. Right, isn't it? Can you, can you define sacrifice without cost? I mean, a real cost? Again, when, if, when, when, does, when does giving or doing become sacrifice? We say somebody, you know, he, that was a real sacrifice for him. By definition, it means to give up something valuable and precious. It hurts a little bit. Right? It digs into the, you know, it, it goes past the superfluous and it digs in a little bit. I'm not just giving the extra. I'm not just giving the overflow. I'm not just giving the leftover. I'm not just giving the whatever. I'm sacrificing. I'm worshiping. Stated positively, David is saying, I will offer to the Lord my God that which is precious and valuable to me. You know, one of the most precious and valuable commodities in our culture today. And there are two of the most valuable things that our culture, that are idols in our culture. They're the most valuable things. They are worshipped and served like nothing else. 
right? Time and gold, right? Money is the obvious one, but time has risen up there with the two. They're the two most precious and valuable commodities that we hoard and cherish and will not give up. And, you know, that we, we cling to. Precious. Sacrifice says there's personal cost involved. That's why in the Old Testament, when you gave offerings, it was always a, you had to give an offering. You had to go to the flock and find the lamb that was without blemish. You had to find the best. Right? The, only the best could be offered. Only the best could be sacrificed. You had to give them your best or the, 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 the first fruits. You had to give it off the top giving. The New Testament calls us to sacrifice, to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received, to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. The the difference in the New Testament is not what it demands of us. In many ways, the New Testament demands more of us than the Old Testament does. But what the New Testament does is it offers you the, the, the life and the power of Christ in the gospel for mercy and forgiveness and freedom. And then the outflow and the outpouring of His Spirit into your lives that all that He would ever demand of you, He gives you the life and the power to do. That He works within us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So He gives us the life within to want to do what He wants us to do. It works within us to will and to do it. Then the power to do all that he calls us to do. To live that life. To follow in his footsteps. To deny ourselves. And to take up that cross. And to walk after him in the way of sacrifice. There in your bulletin under the last cost. The last point. And that's where we are. Romans chapter 12, we're told this. I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. When you see bodies there, I think you should put in your whole lives. Your your body is a summation. If you don't have that, the rest is, you know. He says, "I, I beseech you, brothers. I urge you, brothers. I plead with you. I am... You know, coming after you and, and getting you by the call of brothers, I, I urge you, I beseech you by the mercies of God, right? In the face of the gospel, in the face of what Jesus has done and the outpouring of all that God has given us so freely and so graciously, in, in, in the mercies of God, brothers, offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, logical service. The New Testament response to grace is a reasonable service, a life offered up. Jesus, interestingly, from the Old Testament to the New, the New Testament, Jesus asks for no less than all. No holds barred. Giving of ourselves to God. There in Hebrews 13, 16, there in your last point, he says, author of Hebrews says, do not neglect to do good, to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Doing what is good. That's a sacrifice of time, isn't it? It takes time to bring someone a meal. It takes time to mow someone's yard. It takes time to volunteer a Monday night and watch the children of 
uh, Spanish speakers so that they can learn our language and be productive in our culture and support their families. It takes time to prepare and lead a small group. It takes time. And the list just goes on, right? It takes time. So when he says to doing good, and that is acts of love and mercy, he's saying there is a sacrifice involved. He, say, he calls it a sacrifice. He says, and this is the kind of sacrifice that pleases God. He loves it. God smiles on it. And he says, not only doing good with her acts of love and mercy, they cost time. He says, but sharing what you have, and that's our material resources. It's giving of our stuff, giving of our time and our stuff. The Bible comes after them because they are the number two rivals for your worship. Right? Our time and our stuff rival in our hearts the Lord God himself for our worship. Which one will we serve? You know, either, either we will serve our time and our stuff, and God is a little slice in it to give us more time and stuff, you know, or God is king, and we use all of our time and our stuff to love and serve and advance his kingdom and his purposes, where they become subsumed, they become the tools of his kingdom, instruments in his hands through me and through my stewardship, whatever he gives me in terms of my gifts and time and abilities and resources, and then I become an agent of his kingdom as he works in and through. These sacrifices, he says, are pleasing to God. Every heart that is alive in Christ, when they hear this is pleasing to God, our hearts should be, I want to be in on that. Right? If, I, if this is pleasing to God, then lead the way. Show me how. Tell me. Because that's where we live. I will offer to Yahweh, my God, that which is precious and valuable out of my finite resources. Everything that we do here in the church, everything that we want to do in the community, everything that we are as a church, everything that we are as a, as a little slice of the kingdom of God and its manifestation on the earth and its presence in the Hickson community and everything that we do in our lives as we cost something, right? Every bit of it costs something. And some of it is time and some of it is stuff. And all of it flows out of the heart of God's people. The block party People who are there on Saturday morning setting up. People who are there late Saturday night cleaning up. People who helped plan it for weeks at a time and took work, time off work to be there. To, to ESL, we still need teachers. Or that Monday night, and by the way, the, the child care we're looking for for Monday night, we're hoping to get four or five or six people to volunteer. And then you only have to do it once every five or six weeks, a couple times a semester. You know, but we're looking for people who give a Monday night uh, once every six weeks or so. You know, to tutor children or to teach a Sunday school or even being in a small group. You know, sometimes I think that we think about a lot of the ministries of church in terms of, you know, whether I'm going to do it or not is and whether I really need it or not or I'm, what, what, I, what I need and what I'm going to get out of it. I would encourage us to think that even being in a small group is, is, has as much to do with what you will give. Right? The call to bear one another's burdens, to pray for one another. And to confess your sins one to another. And is that there may be healing. Right? Where else are we doing that? Right? Being in a small group is not just about that I'm going to learn new information for me. But it has to do with, a, it's, a, it's a ministry place. It's another place where we give ourselves away and where we serve and love God's people. There's no such thing as low-cost Christianity. 
There's no such thing as don't cramp my style, comfortable Christianity. Can you imagine Jesus saying, whoever wants to follow me will find it convenient. Don't worry. It's easy. Right? Don't worry. It won't, it won't interfere with your weekends. It, it's not going to interfere with your family plans and goals. Something about hating your father and mother and your spouse and your children and being his disciple. Can you imagine Jesus saying, don't worry. It won't interfere with your hobbies. It won't interfere with your other pursuits and passions. You know, it's, don't worry. I make it convenient. It's easy. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So this is something that you really ought to consider. What's the first thing when Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, What's the next thing he says? First thing, discipleship. If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up a cross and follow. And so my question this morning, and brothers and sisters, I am, I'm after myself here, and I'm after this tension that I, that I want in my own life. Where am I denying myself in order to be of service to Christ? Where, where is it costing me something to worship, to serve, to follow, to go and make disciples? There's a price involved. To use our gifts in the life of the church, there's a, there's a price to be paid, to bear each other's burdens. There's a, there's a price. Let me close with this thought. Where is sacrificial, this whole thing, where does it come from? Because... You know, the, the danger in preaching a sermon like this in an evangelical church, and, and, I, and I understand, and sometimes we, we are so free with the gospel, we really don't talk about the cost of discipleship. But the problem is that if we go and talk about the cost of discipleship, we, our tendency, our earthly tendency is toward legalism. And to start feeling guilty, and to start thinking about all the things I have to do, and to start making lists, and to start, you know, and to just go down this road of somewhere. Where does this life come from? Because Jesus says in all of this call to discipleship, he says there will be nothing that you do, there's nothing in this life more satisfying, more life-giving, no joyful passion ensuing. What, there's nothing in life greater than what he calls us to in giving ourselves to him and to his kingdom. Motive is everything in the Christian life. Faith and love. Right? The Christian life, the powerhouse, the, the engine that makes the Christian life run is faith and love. Faith and love. Right? And faith is what we need to understand as Jesus does this, where David's heart is. What does he believe as he gives sacrifice? What does Jesus believe as he calls us to this life? Let me give you two quick things. Jesus says somewhere else, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Because moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. It's temporary, it's temporal, it, you can't take it with you. Don't, don't get caught up in storing up your treasures on earth. Rather, store up your treasures in heaven. There's no moths, no rust, no thieves, and it doesn't perish, right? It lasts. So how do we store up treasure in heaven? And Jesus has been clear. Use your earthly goods to invest in eternal priorities. Use your time and your stuff and your money to build this kingdom, right? To pursue him. And, and, and as you do, you lay up for a treasure. And, and this is where the, the question becomes, do we actually believe that what we offer to God in service to him and to his kingdom is actually an eternal treasure? 
in, in a sense, makes a deposit in, in an eternal account. That it has eternal benefit. That it's laying up a treasure. That it's, it's an investment. It's not a loss. See, the problem is we think if I give my time to go and do that on a Saturday morning, I lose my weekend. You know, I lose a day to sleep in, or I lost my day to do this, or I lost my, you know, we, is it lost? See, if we think that it's lost, we will never do it. But if we think it's an investment and an eternal value, it's everything. Right? Jim Elliott is the one who said he was a missionary to South America. He said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. We try so hard to keep. He's no fool who gives that up to gain what he cannot lose. But our faith must be sure and strong to believe it is we don't lose it. When I give a Saturday morning, I have invested it in the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I've sought it first and it lays up for me an eternal treasure. I don't even know exactly what that means. But I want to be in on it. Because I've seen the stock market performance. I've seen it over the last few years. Is not trustworthy, but there is an investment. If I could give you an investment, I say, if you put your time and money right here, it is guaranteed never to lose a dime, never to drop. That it's an e- I'm losing myself. If I were to offer you that investment, who wouldn't take it? If you really believed it, this is the sure thing. And Jesus is putting it out there saying, this, my friends, brothers and sisters, is the sure thing. Right? When you invest here, it's never a loss. Thomas Manton, there on your notes, he says, Those who are thus minded, that think that all is lost that is laid out in his service, will never do anything for God. He will never do anything that is great and worthy in the service of his kingdom. Anyone who thinks that when it's given is lost, it's just less that I got. You know, less Saturday that I got, less money that I got, less time that I got. If we think it's a loss, we'll never do anything great or glorious for God. But for the one who understands, believes that all that is laid out in his service is actually the most important and best investment a human being can make on this planet, would be pouring himself out in sacrifice and service. As Paul says, he says, my life is being poured out like a sacrifice in in the service of of his kingdom. I need to end it with this thought. The New Testament says we are compelled by love. As we come to this table this morning, it's because he first loved us. If you don't get that, I encourage you to go back there. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. We worship because he has first saved us. He's first come to us. That that is everything that who he is and what he has done that becomes the motive in the life. It's who God, David was making the offering to, right? He says, I will not offer to Yahweh my God. And that's what drove him. Yahweh, his God, who has loved him and saved him and forgiven him. As we come to this table this morning, We are to be compelled by love. We are honored to honor Him. We are blessed to bless Him. We are satisfied to serve Him. We find life in following Him. 
The heart of faith says, I will not offer to the Lord my God that which cost me nothing. I will sacrifice in His service. And grace is a powerhouse. Grace is a powerhouse that awakens the dead. Right? It raises the dead, it awakens the sleeping, and it moves to build churches and kingdoms. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning and we ask that you would awaken us to your grace in such a way that we would be set free, free not to indulge ourselves, but free to love one another and to love and to pour ourselves out in sacrifice and service. Oh, we would be free, but we would be free to serve you. We would be free to love you, free to love your kingdom, free to worship with the fullness of who we are and what we have, free to give ourselves away and not be so stingy. Oh, would you open our eyes to the value of you and your kingdom, that we might give ourselves to eternal things and not to those things which are passing. We ask and we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.